our reading this morning comes from the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 24, verses 1 to 12. This is God's Word. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified on the third day and rise again. They remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb. Stooping and looking in, he saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. The grass withers, And the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. You may be seated. Father in heaven, we come now to the moment in this service where we are to consider the teaching of your word. Father, we need your help in this. We need your spirit to be present to us in a mighty and even transformative way. Even as we've read in this passage, one can hear the word of God and not truly hear your word. One can become confused over what it is that you have said that you will do. And by that confusion, create all sorts of scenarios and conclusions about life which are false and lead us into unnecessary distresses, concerns, sufferings, and struggles. Father, we desire this day that your word would be so crystal clear to our minds, so overwhelmingly beautiful to our hearts, and so engaging and strengthening to our wills that we could not but give our entire lives away to the crucified and risen Savior once we have heard His Word, once we have seen Him in the pages of this, your Scriptures. For that to happen, O Lord, we desperately, desperately need You. And so be mindful We are all just dust in this room. And we are foolish apart from your enlightenment and understanding. So give us that spirit 
the Spirit who opens to us the mysteries of you, our God, and who makes plain to us the truth and all its teaching. Come now and show us the risen Christ. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. It was the crack of dawn. John tells us it was still dark. When the women got up from their beds and began to make their journey to the tomb. Emotionally, these women would have been spent. They've just passed through the death of the Lord, the one whom they believe to be the Messiah. As they make this journey to the tomb, undoubtedly they're speaking and reminiscing and hanging their heads, maybe even shedding tears as they go to express what could only be named as a final act of love. A final act of love to care for the one that they had been loved and cared for so well. They had put together these spices. It was customary at the time to combine oil and spices for the purpose of embalming a body that had deceased. This is how they understood their role. They hoped that through this action they might keep this body, a body that they had no doubtedly embraced, a body that they had grown to genuinely love. They hoped that through this act of love, though they couldn't bring him back to life potentially, through their efforts, they could at least keep his body around a little bit longer. Keep it from decomposing so, so quickly through this, this act of embalming. Mark tells us that as they go to do this act of love, they're, they're also fretting and worrying and concerned because they've heard... And they've heard that there's this large stone that's been placed over the entrance to the grave and that the Romans have put together armed guards that are there to keep watch over that grave so that the body might not be stolen. Mark tells us they're not even sure if they're going to be able to have access to Jesus' body. Will they even be let in? Will they get there and no one will be there and the stone will be too large and they together will not be able to remove the stone and that this will become a futile um, journey to do this kind act and they'll go home probably more discouraged than even when they started. They had no idea it'd be so easy to get in. And they had no idea there'd be no need for those spices. When they arrived on the scene, they were, they were shocked. There was the stone rolled away, pushed aside from the entrance to the, to the grave. There's no mention here in Luke's retelling of any armed Roman soldiers that would keep these women away. And so immediately they run in, thinking something surely must have happened. They run into the tomb and they're looking for the body of Jesus and they didn't see it anywhere. Luke says that they're perplexed. It's a, it certainly would have been the emotional state of the women, perplexed, confused, bewildered. 
What in the world is going on? John tells it even a little bit stronger than that. He tells us that they are distressed. That there's an agony within the midst of their bewilderment because as they see Jesus' body missing, they draw the conclusion that you and I would draw. With the stone rolled away and the claws lying there on the ground and Jesus' body gone, what has happened? Well, it's obviously right. Does it take a rocket scientist to figure this stuff out? The body has been stolen. The body has been snatched. Sorrow, in this particular case, quickly gave way to fear for these women. Because as they're sitting there, worrying, concerned, who could it be? Mulling over with one another about what do we do now? Where do we go? Two men appear. Two men that are later described in this text as angels. They're described as those with dazzling apparel. Probably apparel much like some of you are wearing here on Easter Sunday, right? Dazzling apparel. Oh, no, no. As, as nice as you look in your Easter colors this morning, it pales, right, in comparison to the radiance of these angels who have just come from the throne room of God himself, resplendent, with his glory shining upon them. The word here for dazzling apparel is the same word that was used at the transfiguration. When Moses and Elijah and Jesus were transfigured before the very eyes of Peter, James, and John. Not surprisingly, the women here immediately fall to the ground. Perhaps out of reverence. Perhaps thinking that God himself has come. In this moment. And so perhaps this is an act of worship. But we don't see the angels actually tell them to get up. Perhaps it was so bright. And and they didn't know what to do but to hide their face in the ground. And do the very best that they can to preserve the tearing of their own retina. Based upon the, the brilliance of the glory of God shining upon these two men. Perhaps it's even deeper than that. Perhaps that is the instinct of the human nature when it comes in contact with the glory of God. Perhaps the same very thing would happen to every single one of us in this room should two dazzling figures show up, should the presence and the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ make itself known in our midst. Well, in any case... These angels of light come, and you know what they do? They do exactly what angels do. They give a message. They shed light on the situation that the disciples are experiencing, or the women are experiencing. The the disciples will later experience the same kind of confusion. And they question the women. It's 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 a curious question. It's actually a question of a little chastisement. The angels ask, why do you seek the living among the dead? Now, we have to assume that the angels spotted the spices that the women had brought, right? I mean, they they knew of this. They knew why the women had come. They had come here to find a dead body. In fact, the dead body of the Lord Jesus. And these heavenly messengers knew that they were planning this embalming. They must have seen this and been aware of this. But... But the angels are changing and turning, as it were, the tables on the women themselves and provoking in them as to why they're thinking the way that they're thinking. Why have you come here with the expectation to find a dead body? Why do you search for the living among the dead? 
It may seem like a scandal to you. You women, as you come to embalm the body of Jesus and it's gone, it may seem like there's a scandal at play here. But let me tell you, according to the angels, the scandal is not that Jesus' body is missing. The scandal is that you're looking for it among the dead. That's the scandal. The scandal is you've come here with the expectation to find a lifeless corpse with the visage of the Savior that you loved. A few years ago, I read an article. I think it was in the Huffington Post. Noting the top ten grave sites in all of the world. The ones that people are constantly visiting. It was a really fascinating article. There's a small paragraph about every single person that is named. There was, a, there was a picture of their tombstone or their mausoleum or whatever it is that they may be encased in. It had the most diverse of characters as you can imagine. It had you know, William Shakespeare on one side and it had Elvis Presley you know, on the other. It's a really interesting article, especially the little section on Elvis Presley. You, you'll remember in August of 1977, he died. Some of you, probably, as your fans of Elvis's music, you remembered the moment that you got the news, the tragic news of the drug overdose. He was buried soon thereafter in the Forest Hills Cemetery there in Memphis, Tennessee, but you'll recall that he was quickly moved from that location because there were vandals that showed up to, to exhume those remains and steal those remains, and thus they moved Elvis's body to Graceland where it it now lays to rest. According to this article, an estimated over 600,000 people a year go and visit Elvis's grave. As, as legendary as Elvis is, and, and the mausoleum is, is unbelievable. The Doric columns on, on the front, the, the ornate brass and, and the bronze with marble fittings everywhere. It, it looks like a small sanctuary. But the reality is it holds a bunch of dirt. It holds a body that is decomposed. It's almost four decades now. He's not still around despite what some will tell you. He is, he is very much gone. And the same is true with every great man and woman in history. Well, scratch great. It's true of every man and woman in history. And, and as the angels here speak to these ladies, ladies, I want to know, there's going to be no need for your spices today. Thank you for your efforts. Today is, is not a day for you to memorialize and preserve a lifeless corpse for as long as, humanly speaking, you know how to do. Today is a day to celebrate the presence of someone who is very much alive. Very much alive. Now, to remember that the women, this is news to them. It's, it's, as you come here on Easter morning and I mentioned that he is alive, you came here expecting to hear that. In fact, if I didn't tell you that, some of you would be quite frustrated, I bet, with your experience this morning. He is alive. You expected that. The women did not expect to hear this. 
We have no reason to expect that upon immediately hearing it, they embraced it completely and said, of course, and sure, he told us he would. No, that's not the sense. The sense is that they probably had a quizzical look on their face. So much so that we see the angels pair the announcement of his, his status as being alive with an instruction to remember. An instruction to remember. Look at it here in the text. They say, remember how he told you in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered up into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. Remember. He told you about this. You knew this was coming. Why have you come to look for the living among the dead? He told you that you were gonna, he was going to be rejected by the chief priests, the scribes, and the religious leaders, that he was going to be crucified, and that on the third day he was going to arise again. But you, well, you seem to not know it. One of the most notable places that Jesus recounts for us these very words is in the transfiguration. After he comes down from the mount, after revealing his glory to Peter, James, and John, he promptly tells them, don't get too triumphal. I know that was quite a sight, you seeing my pre-incarnate glory, you seeing the glory that I'm headed for in my resurrection and ascension. I know that was quite a sight, but listen, there's a, there's a road between here and there, and it's, it's a darker path than the light that you just were cascaded in on the top of that mountain. It's a path that has to do with rejection and death, and he tells them these very words. What's interesting is in Mark's retelling of the transfiguration, at the very end, we get this little glimpse. Mark tells us this. The disciples did not understand what Jesus was saying. And they were afraid to ask. Isn't that interesting? He said it. They heard it. They didn't understand it. And they were scared to ask. Now, what's this all about? Why were they afraid to ask? Well, you you know, you know what it's like to appear in a crowd, people gathered at a wedding reception, at a social event. Maybe you'll have one even this afternoon with a collection of people and a conversation will ensue around a a subject, maybe say a piece of art, you know, a great piece of art in that in that great museum, in that great city, and they'll wax eloquently about this piece of art, and they'll speak to you in a manner that they assume that you know all about it. Right? You know this experience? And you, mindfully listening to them, know absolutely nothing about what they're talking about. But everyone around you, you're kind of taking in the company, and you're thinking, okay, all these people look like they know what this person is talking about. They're nodding politely. So I think I'll just, I'll I'll nod politely too, and act like we all know what's going on. Could that have been the situation with the disciples? Eager to find out what it is that Jesus is saying, but but not wanting to, to look ignorant of what they should have picked up on. Or maybe the disciples were afraid to ask because they really didn't want to know. You know, Jesus said something about rejection and death. That's all I remember. Let's hope he forgets about that. Let's hope that that just, whatever that was, that was he had a bad, you know, he got up on the wrong side of the bed. He had late night pizza, some indigestion was bothering him. And he, he spouted about rejection and, and death. Surely that's not in his mission. Surely that's not what he's saying. Let, let's just, I don't understand it. Let's, let's just pass on. Let's pretend it didn't happen. I remember the first time I was in a wreck, a car wreck. 
You know, you remember that. Never forget that. You never forget the first time you were in a car wreck. I, I dare say you forget the seconds or the third times. I don't know. I've not been in that many, praise be to God. Um, but I remember this one because I was, well, I was young. I was a teenager, and I was with one of my friends who was in his little Ford pickup truck, and we were in the country and driving along, and we came to this sign. It said, Road Closed. He glanced at the sign, and he kept going. Don't, don't do that. <laughs> Don't, don't do that. That's just not good. Teenagers in here, trust me, don't do that. You're, we're rocking along on this, uh, this country blacktop, and when the blacktop just turns into red clay, just immediately over this hill, and it's all wet and it's all muddy because it's been washed out by a flash flood. That it happened a few days earlier. And what does my friend do? Well, brilliant as we are as young drivers, um, he presses on the brakes hard and slips and slides with this car all over the place until we promptly end up next to a light pole with a big dent in the side of his father's pickup truck. Thankfully, no one was hurt other than the truck. It was banged up but drivable. We made it back to his house and his dad was working in the yard. You know, of course. Dad is working in the yard. And we pull up, and before my friend can even get one word out of his mouth, his father comes up and says, I don't even want to know. I, I don't even, even want to know. Now, if you knew my friend, you would understand why his father had said that. I don't even want to know. Why, why did he not want to know? Well, he didn't want to. He, he was afraid it was going to be worse to know the truth. He was afraid that we were going to talk about another car in the accident and another person injured in the hospital. He was afraid that we were going to tell him things that would just mean life-changing potential realities. He didn't want to know because he was afraid of what knowing would mean. Could that have been the situation with the disciples? Oh, I think it's not unlikely that that could have been something that the disciples felt. But whatever reason, we now see clearly that the disciples in their unwillingness to pursue clarity from the Lord Jesus over the nature of the mission that he described causes tremendous confusion when what it is that he described actually happened and they weren't prepared with understanding. Now listen, this is a significant truth in the Gospel of Luke and it's a significant truth here in Luke 24 and I don't want you to miss it. That knowing the significance of Jesus' death and his resurrection, one must come into clear understanding of Jesus' words surrounding that event. Well, to know the significance and to know the meaning of Jesus' death and resurrection, one has to know with clarity what it is Jesus said, how he described the event, what the meaning of the event was all about. Now, this is all over the Gospel of Luke, but it's, it's really evident here in Luke 24 because if we go into the next section of Luke 24, which we'll do in a few weeks together, if you go into the next section, what you find is there are two disciples who are walking on the road to Emmaus. And they're talking about all the things that have just happened in Jerusalem, namely Jesus' death and resurrection. And as they're walking, they're talking about how confused they are about what it is that's happened and then what happens. Well, Jesus shows up. 
on that road. And he unfolds for them, we're told, the scriptures. From Moses and the prophets, he teaches them concerning himself. And we're told that the hearts of these men were burning inside of them as they had clarity now about what had happened in the event. At the end of Luke 24, Jesus is going to enter in with the disciples. And you know what? He says, don't be troubled. Don't be fearful. They're still struggling, struggling to believe, struggling to understand. And he again unfolds for them the scriptures. And they move from confusion into clarity. You know, this is remarkable. You can be, as these women were, at the turning point of history in the brightest moment of redemption. And be weeping because you don't get it. You don't get it. What was the greatest redemption of God was met with tears by women who loved Jesus. You see, the significance of Jesus' death and resurrection must be paired with the light and the clarity of the Word of God. We are so tempted, aren't we, to walk through life and try to understand life by the light of life. To think that we're smart enough and shrewd enough and, and wise enough to be able to pick apart and consider things. We don't have to hear too many outside voices. We can do this on our own. The Scripture teaches us very clearly, no, 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 you need the interpretation of the Scripture itself. The Scripture is here to give light to life. To give light to life. All of a sudden, as the angels preach a little sermon here outside this tomb, they remember Jesus' words in the presence of these women. These women go from a place of confusion and distress into a moment of hope and clarity. It's not enough simply to pass through a moment of redemption. You have to understand it through the clarity of the Word of God. It's the very point that Jesus made in one of His more famous but also more strange stories. You remember the story of Lazarus and the rich man. He tells it in Luke chapter 16. It's strange because it's a man who was rich who went to a place of torment described as Sheol or hell. He's in this place and he's crying out in anguish and he calls out to Abraham and Abraham answers him in this story. And there's lots of mysteries about whether this is true or a parable or whatever. And we won't get into the complexities of that. Other than to say, this man said to Abraham, Abraham, please if, go back and tell my brothers about this place. Warn them not to come here because I know that if you, coming back from the dead, go and share it with them, then they will certainly believe. They will, they will certainly believe. And, and you know how it is that Abraham responds? He says, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Oh, that's a powerful statement. That's a powerful statement. They wouldn't even be convinced if someone raised from the dead. He says, they have the Moses and the prophets. We're going to talk about this in days to come, that Moses and the prophets are speaking to the reality of Christ and Him crucified. But for this time being, I want you to see that these women, through the Word of God, not through the experience of being there at the tomb, came into clarity regarding what has happened. 
And they are beginning to see life by the light of Jesus' words rather than trying to understand life by the light of life. Now once they remember the words of Jesus and the dawning, the light, begins to come into their own hearts and into their souls, this is what we're told in verse 8. They remembered, they returned, and then they told all the rest. I love that. That's a sermon right there, verse 8. It's a sermon. They, they remembered the Word of God, and immediately then, in response, they returned, and then they carried out a mission. They, they shared what it is that had happened to them. They began to, to speak to it. In an earlier conception of the sermon, this sermon went through several conceptions, and, and, and sometimes that happens. The earlier conception was this, confused by the empty tomb, corrected by the angels, called to remember Jesus' words, and then compelled to witness. That's it. Compelled. They've received good news. Now, let me ask you, when you receive good news, what do you do? I know, you sit on it, right? You, you keep your lips tightly put together. You, you say nothing about it whatsoever. No. You, you burst forth. No one can even keep you from saying the good news that has happened to you. And these, these women who probably were hushed in grief have now become the first missionaries of the resurrection. Overnight, as they've witnessed the angel, they've heard and remembered Jesus' words. They now know the great news of his redemption. They must go share this with the disciples and as is described here, all of the rest. But let me tell you, if you're going to share this news, it doesn't always go well. It didn't go well for the first missionaries of the resurrection. And they go back to the disciples and they begin to share with the disciples all that they had seen and heard. And what's described here in this text is that the disciples heard it and went, yeah, sure. And they rolled their eyes. They just missed it. It's female hysteria of some sort. In fact, the word often, often used in medicine, it means a state of delirium, a state of, a state of crazy talk. That's where these women are. That's how they're considered by the disciples, except for maybe, well, one disciple. His name is Peter. It seems that in Peter, there's a possibility of a hope. In something within the delirium of these women and the silliness of their stories, Peter, even in the midst of the doubts with the other disciples, hears something maybe in the moment... When they say, you know, we would never believe this if the angels had not reminded us of Jesus' words. And maybe that triggered something for Peter. I mean, you remember, less than 48 hours from, from this event, Peter has just denied the Lord Jesus three times. We're not finding Peter at his highest moment. We're finding Peter at his lowest moment. You'll remember that when Peter was in the midst of that third denial, we're told that a cock crows. And in that moment, Jesus looks at Peter. And Peter sees Jesus. Can you imagine the sickening sorrow that would have overcome Peter in that moment? Peter remembers 
that the, the, the last time that he saw Jesus was the moment of his lowest and most pitiable sin. And the women are telling him that there's a possibility that he might look into that face again. And maybe see something different. Maybe, maybe he remembers this. That, that in the moment that Peter was speaking and denying the Lord Jesus and he heard the cock crow. Do you know what we read in Luke 23 on that? We're, we're told that when the cock crows, Peter remembers the words of Jesus. That's a really different kind of remembering than the women are doing here. It's the moment when you remember the words that someone spoke to you and you went against them and you sinned and you did what was wrong and it slayed you. And then you remember somebody's words of what they said and it gave you hope and it gave you encouragement. Peter knew what it was like to remember the words of Jesus. But these women, when they were remembering the words of Jesus, they were remembering a message of hope. And maybe for Peter there was hope. Maybe for Peter, that he would not go to his grave with the thought of the last time that he and his eyes locked Jesus' eyes were in the moment that he was denying that he knew him. Maybe he would look into Jesus' eyes again. And when he looked into them, he would see forgiveness. He would see hope. He would experience peace. This is, this is just the beginning for Peter. We're told that he runs to the tomb. He stoops and he looks in just like the women and he sees the cloth. And he walks away, as the text says, and he's marveling. doesn't say he's believing. It says he's marveling. You know what it's like to marvel. To, to know something is happening, but not know all that's happening. You know enough almost to be dangerous. You know a little bit, but this you're beginning to realize is much larger and much bigger than you. But let me tell you, the beginning of Easter faith is marveling. That's the beginning of Easter faith. Easter faith starts when we look into the tomb to see the cloths lying there. And we know that something larger than the cosmos itself has happened in this little town in the Middle East in an outlying tomb. We know that something of the hinge of history has shifted because one who was dead is now alive and that just doesn't happen. And we don't know what yet to make of it, but we marvel. That's where Peter is. It's the beginning of Easter faith. And let me tell you, that beginning is all you need by Spirit's help. It's all you need by the Spirit's help because Peter, as he moves from this moment into seeing Jesus again, we see that he grows in his faith so much so that, G that Peter becomes the voice in Acts chapter 2 
that declares that this Jesus whom you have crucified, God delivered up by His foreordained plan. And God raised him up, Peter says, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for the grave to hold him. Oh, that's different than marveling. He marveled at the beginning. It moved into a solid place of standing for Peter, so much so that it became the profession of his life that no longer would he be saying, Get away from me. I never knew him. He would be preaching to thousands and saying, He was delivered up for your transgressions. He was raised for your victory over the grave. The pangs of death no longer have strength because the grave could not hold him. Don't you see? Peter moved from being emptied of faith to be filled with faith because he began to marvel at the truth of what it is that he beheld. You know, it must have been quite a day when Peter was called aside by Jesus and Jesus asked him a couple of questions. Peter, still probably rattling around in the back of his head about this denial, Jesus looks at him and says, Peter, do you love me? And Peter says, well, yes, Lord. You you know, I love you. And the Lord asks again, Peter, do you love me? Well, yes, Lord. I mean, of course course I love you. I, I know you may be thinking of that denial thing, that back there, I think I'm I think I'm over that. Peter. Peter, do you love me? We're told in the text that Peter was grieved. That that Jesus would, would advance that question three times in his direction. And each time, you'll remember, that Jesus responded, and feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. You see, when we come to the empty tomb and the gospel begins to register within our hearts and we move from just marveling into a staid confidence over Jesus' victory over the grave, we are given a mission. We are at that point equipped to call others into beholding the glory of the gospel too. Peter, probably like many of us felt, maybe that his days of ministry were numbered now that he had failed. Jesus said your days of ministry are just beginning because it's not about you, Peter. It's about me. It's about me. It's about you telling others about me. Go feed my lambs. Share my story. Make known my gospel. And Peter, I will build my kingdom. And the gates of hell will not prevail 
against it. Paul writes, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. Remember Jesus' words. The tomb is empty. He is not here. He is risen indeed. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, you know the hearts in this room. You know the lives touched by Christ. You know the lives who have yet known Him. You know the ones who think they know Him and are under great deception. Today is the day of salvation. Come and save us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.